This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Toxic turkey. Toxic turkey. That's what we're discussing today. Seems to be the theme, though. I will say there is a little bit less fear in the markets. We're seeing an overall uh, rally here in the U.S. equity markets, and it's perfect. Uh, Chris Zaccarelli, he's the chief investment officer of Independent Advisors Alliance. He joins us now from Charlotte, North Carolina, to break this all down for us. Uh, Chris, it's great. You know, you oversee portfolio management strategies. Did you do anything in your portfolio that was different today versus yesterday now that some of the turkey contagion and the turkey fears seems to have dissipated a little bit? We haven't been making too many changes. Uh, I feel like our emerging markets exposure was pretty right-sized for this year. It's been obviously a lot more volatile than anyone would have predicted, and a lot of that has to do with the stronger dollar. But at the margins, we've been putting some money back to work where we have, uh, where we have cash available and, and, and looking to invest uh, predominantly in the U.S. at this point, although we have um, had some, some additional buying of emerging markets uh, equities and, and, to a lesser extent, EM debt over the last month or so. So, Chris, step back for us a little bit and, and remind remind us and the listeners, you know, why Turkey has had such it feels like uh, an undue effect or maybe an unexpected effect on the broader markets. Does this speak to the overall fragility? Does this speak to people not paying as much attention, maybe as they as they should? Give us some context here. Well, I think what's happening in Turkey is, to some extent, um, you know, a larger impact than people would have would, would have otherwise expected. Obviously, um, you know, what's happening there is mostly a political crisis, but that's mm. that's turned into uh, you know a currency crisis, and that's because they're refusing to follow what what's typical central bank norms in terms right. of rising raising interest rates in in the face of all this. So I think taking a step back, you know, what's happening in Turkey is, is awakening people to the risks that are out there and the realization that, you know, despite the fact that you're expecting some volatility in emerging markets, it can be very bumpy and, and very volatile. And spikes like this, I think, always, always shake people out of their complacency. Shaking people out of complacency. I wonder as you have some cash on the sidelines that you are looking to invest, and you've mentioned a little bit of EM debt and equity. What's your top pick? Um, well, right now, you know, if, if you have to go within the emerging markets, uh, I really like India. Um, some people have made some comparisons to what's happening in Turkey to potentially what could happen in, in India or Argentina. But, you know, the large difference between Turkey and the other two, again, are, are the willingness of those central banks to raise rates where necessary and to follow kind of traditional, um, you know, central bank orthodoxy in terms of what you should do with these crises. Right. And presumably, you know, the, the assumption is, is that in those places, unlike in Turkey, there is something resembling an independent uh, central bank, right? 
Absolutely, and that's the key point for what, for why those markets maybe aren't necessarily as much as risk as Turkey is. But as far as you know, why India the valuations are really good. Um, they have a, a huge you know emerging middle class story. It's going to take time to play out. But to the extent that China has been such an economic miracle over the past 20 years, India has an opportunity to do that. Now, obviously, it's going to take some time. But if if you look at kind of valuations and potential growth rates going forward, that would probably be my favorite place. I want to talk a little bit about China since you mentioned it. Uh, we've talked a lot about how they were in a bear market. In your note here, you look at the Chinese stock market still down over 23% since its high, uh, while the S&P is only down about 1% You know, o- over that period. Uh, what do you make of China right now? We've talked a lot about their problems with uh, debt and over leveraged. Um, is that something that you see turning around anytime soon? Well, I think, you know, the Chinese economy, not only is it really large, they also have a pretty firm control over the economy. What what their what their government can do and what the institutions in China can do are, are really unmatched when you look across the world in terms of the fact that they have so much control over their economy. Now, over time, that may end up being, you know, something that's, that's a concern. But in the short run, it allows them to do a lot, uh, to take a lot of very strong policy steps, whether that's, you know, working with their currency, whether that's working with their banks, the fact that there's so many state-owned enterprises. So I think China is in, is, is in good control of their economy. Obviously, uh, what's happening with the tariffs and trade war is of concern to international investors. You're clearly seeing international investors, at least from a Chinese point of view, being a little bit more skittish and, and, and taking some money out of, out of China, as well as domestic investors having some capital flight as well. And so I think that's why you're seeing the stock market react so dramatically in China, whereas in the United States, not only are U.S. investors relatively confident on the U.S. economy, but it looks like international investors are also starting to allocate more to the U.S. because it seems like we're starting to decouple from the rest of the world in terms of having a very strong economy while they're slowing in the rest of the world. Absolutely. Chris Zaccarelli, Chief Investment Officer, Independent Advisor Alliance, joining us on the phone from down in Charlotte, North Carolina. Chris, great to be with you. Thanks so much. Jason, my buzzword there, decoupling. He said it. We keep hearing that, that U.S. growth is so much better and that fund manager survey from Bank of America this morning, 19% are overweight U.S. equities because it is just the best performer. Well, and it was amazing as everything unfolded on Friday, Taylor, to think about the U.S. as the safe haven play. I mean, it's it's really incredible market to be watching right now. This is Bloomberg Radio. I need some money. So this is absolutely one of my favorite stories on the Bloomberg today. It is among the most read, and the headline says it all. In this never-ending Lehman short, $170,000 is still on the table. It's a fantastic story. Lisa Pham is European equities and markets reporter working late into the night for us over in London from where she joins us on the phone. Lisa, great to be with you. So Whitney Tilson, he made millions shorting Lehman back in the day. Still some money hanging out there. What happened? Yeah, so basically what happened was that he had shorted uh, Lehman Brothers for the first time after hearing a presentation by David Einhorn. And that was at the end of 2007, beginning of 2008. Now, as we know, with Lehman Brothers, they filed for bankruptcy in September of 2008. A week before then, Whitney Tilson had put together another trade. So he shorted, uh, he increased his short position on Lehman that a week before Lehman went bankrupt. 
And so that was quite interesting because obviously the stock fell quite a lot. So it went from about $17 to about 17 cents. Wow. And so he made quite a bit of money, but then the problem was he didn't cover his short position. So what happens with Lehman, which what I've been told is quite, uh, quite rare, is that they had cancelled their shares in like 2012, but then issued one new share. So everyone who was a shareholder in Lehman Brothers then became uh, a part of this like one existing share and it was pro rated. So basically, Tilton couldn't cover his short position because he couldn't get the 68,013 shares that he had outstanding, which he had borrowed from Goldman Sachs. Well, and this is interesting because it's sort of a technical issue, you know, that it's a change between cancelling all of the shares versus taking that unusual step of issuing one new share of common One single stock share. Amazing. In place. You know, I wonder just, is this typical? How often does this happen when you're shorting a company? So when I was reporting on the story, I was asking a lot of my sources and it, they all thought it sounded quite bizarre. I have done a bit of research and it does happen every now and then, but it isn't something that happens on a regular basis. Like usually what I've been told is that usually when a stock goes bankrupt, all the shares are cancelled. And so then that's when the short sellers can go to the brokers and say, hey, give me my money back. But what had happened was that in this particular case, because there was this like weird thing of um, this one new share uh, being issued that's kind of like changed the 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 thing it changed the the whole thing a little bit well and i love the quote you end the story with uh from whitney tilson he says quote my warning to everyone else doing any short selling you must cover your short position at some point before the stock stops trading quote don't get too cute trying to avoid paying taxes. I mean, this, it, you know, we live in an age of the short. We're talking about shorts all the time, Taylor, with Tesla uh, as well. So so what happens, Lisa, to Tilson? Does he just sort of have to suck it up here? Yeah, so at the moment, he's basically waiting for these bankruptcy proceedings with Lehman to complete. And once the bankruptcy proceedings have completed and um, this like one new share has been cancelled, then that's when he, that liability that he has is extinguished and that's when he can get his money back. Uh, what he's been told is like maybe it's about like two years away, but um, at the moment, I guess we can't really tell given that it's been about a decade since Lehman filed for bankruptcy. Well, and you talked about how the situation was bizarre. It's sort of the amount that's bizarre as well, because it's only, I mean, we say only $170,000 because he made millions betting against Lehman. And and that would have forced him, had he covered the short, right, to recognize and gain and pay capital gains taxes. So you sort of wonder, too, this is all to avoid taxes. It's only for him $170,000. How big of a deal is this really? Yeah, so when I spoke to Tilson about it, he did say that it was perhaps an enforced savings mechanism for him. So he is expecting to get his money back at some point, um, right. just like not any time within the next few months. That's fantastic. Lisa Pham, our European equities and markets reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from London. Great story. And home. We're looking at Home Depot, of course. This is a company, Jason, that just 
continues to impress. You have top line revenue growth churning out three, four, five, six percent. It's a stock really that has just been getting it done. Joining us now to break this all down is Seema Shaw. She's our senior consumer analyst over at Bloomberg Intelligence. And we're lucky to have Joe Feldman as well. He's a senior managing director and retail analyst over at Tulsi Advisory Group. Uh, thank you both, Seema. I want to start with you. Mm-hmm. We just heard about those 8% comps mm-hmm. and the great, uh, you know, s- high single-digit top-line revenue growth. Uh, but we have talked a little bit about those transportation costs mm-hmm. and the pressures that is putting on future gross margin expansion. How much of a concern is that in terms of a headwind versus the good comps that we're seeing? Um, broadly speaking, across retail, it is a, a headwind. But in this case, right now, it's through their supplier network. So, you know, at this point, it's manageable uh, for them. But going forward, it depends on how much is probably pushed down to them and if they can maintain a high level of comps, which, you know, they've done extremely well, but it might decelerate, but still be very good going forward. So, Joe, I want to bring you in here. The stock initially uh, moved up this morning and now is off, you know, a quarter of 1%, down about 47 cents. Uh, what did investors hear that maybe they were a little less excited about as they dug in? I think that the the performance was very strong, and I think there was a little bit of concern, like, is this just as good as it gets? You know, mm-hmm. they they did an 8% same-store sales number, earnings were terrific, and their guidance for the second half, objectively, you know, that that same-store sales line is going to be slightly lower growth because of the tougher comparisons from a year ago. When you, you stack them up, though, as we say, two-year stacked same-store sales, they'll be pretty consistent with the first half of the year, but I think that's part of it. I think there's a little concern about maybe the slowdown in housing. I think it's a little less so about the gross margin pressure, just given that the variance from the, the prior guidance isn't too significant um, from what they gave in the past. And Joe, I want to ask you a little bit about your uh, price target here. You have a 217. Uh, I wonder how you get there, what the fundamentals are behind that that you see, or is it more relative to, let's say, Lowe's, uh, because Home Depot has arguably better locations and better management. And by way of context, stock trading about 193 right now. Right. And our price target's $217. And you know, we're, we're, we base it off of relative valuation. We also look at a DCF and other ver- ver- valuation metrics. Uh, I'm using around a, a P multiple of 23 times my 2018 EPS estimate of 945, which is likely to inch a little bit higher. I know it's a, I'm already above where the guidance is, but I think that they can do a little bit stronger uh, there. And the premium multiple really is because they have some defensibility against Amazon and they're differentiated, they're the leader in the space, and they continue to take market share. And why is that, that they have defense against Amazon? Is that because I'm not going to buy my home improvement online? I really do need to actually go into the store and feel and touch and look at things, correct? I think broadly speaking for the majority of what they sell, that is the case. Um, you know, a lot of home improvement projects that you need to do, uh, even things as simple as lumber, building materials, that's hard to do and ship online via Amazon. However, 
replenishable items, light bulbs, air filters for your home heating system, those kinds of things you could do online and be sold online. And, and, and I think Home Depot has done a good job of trying to uh, retain their customer and transition them to online sales. But that's where there could be a little threat from Amazon, but, but the vast majority of what they sell still requires you know, the, the store. Right. The center of it. So, Seema, come on back mm-hmm. in here. We're going to hear from Lowe's, I believe, next week. Obviously, right. these are two companies that people look at not just as retailers, but as proxies for the home improvement market mm-hmm. and, and really consumer sentiment uh, in a lot of ways. What do you hear? What did you hear today? And what are you starting to hear in terms of Lowe's that gives some texture there? Well, I think the fact that Home Depot's comps were so strong bodes well for Lowe's because they have the same kind of secular tailwind. So there should be some benefit that Lowe's also sees from improved weather. So I think that's certainly going to help them. But Lowe's in the past had more execution issues and they have a new CEO who's bringing in a new management team. So I think it'll also be about what's his strategy to sort of turn around the business, improve execution and improve, you know, the flow through if they do, if they can grow the top line. Lowe's up about 1% today, uh, just uh, over a dollar. I want to talk a little bit as well about the international business because we mm-hmm. are so focused here uh, on the U.S. There's a Home Depot right over here, right on 59th Street. Uh, but I take a look at our FA function here on the Bloomberg and we see that international revenue makes up about 8% of their overall sales. That's been slowly declining since 10%, but it feels relatively steady. You write here in your report about Canada and Mexico. Latin America may be a future growth opportunity for them. Uh, what do you see there? Uh, Right now, I think, broadly speaking, Canada and Mexico have been doing uh, well also, similar to the U.S., maybe not as strong, but I think they have done well. And they're growing very slowly, if at all. They opened one store in Mexico this past quarter. I think it's been more about increasing productivity in the units that they have right now. So, Joe, let's wrap up with you. Uh, About a minute left. What do you think about Lowe's looking ahead? And what do you think about the sort of proxy for the market? Yeah, I, I think Seema uh, captured it very well. Uh, you know, Lowe's is a company that we like as well. I think they're going to have similar trends to what Home Depot had. And with the new management team, there's a lot of opportunity ahead for them to improve their operating efficiency, to improve customer service. And, you know, that could really help to drive sales and earnings in the stock. And I think that these are a good read for, you know, for the consumer to some extent, you know, because it is investing in the home. But, um, you know, a lot of this was seasonal trend as well and and just continued strength of of home improvement more so than just broad retail, although broad retail has been better this quarter. Very good. Joe Feldman, Senior Managing Director and Retail Analyst at Telsey Advisor Group, joining us on the phone from New York City, and Seema Shah, Senior Consumer Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio in Manhattan. So, Taylor, I love these stocks because they do – give us a bigger window into what consumers are thinking, where they're spending money, and when they're not. Yeah, and how it's all correlated to the housing market. And uh, I liked the discussion about Amazon as well. And sort of, you have to feel in touch this stuff. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, but you let me drive. Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. 
It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, the drive to the close. Tom Plum, he's the president and chief investment officer of Plum Funds, also the portfolio manager of the Plum Balance Fund. We're going to talk a little bit about that and a lot about what he's seeing in the market. He's based in Madison, Wisconsin, but he is sitting right next to me here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. It is pouring rain outside. Sorry, we're not more hospitable to you, Tom, uh, joining Taylor Riggs and myself. So what are you seeing out there? What's your big theme as you look at the markets right now, especially given the volatility we've seen over the last couple of days? Well, volatility, especially in the last couple of years, was nothing. And then now this last year has really picked up. I think that's a sign of a mature stock market. But at the same time, it's not a sign of a market that necessarily is peaking yet. So what we're seeing is that as long as the economy's looking good, uh, purchasing managers indexes across the world are still looking good in all the developed countries, and the Federal Reserve has an accommodative policy, which you measure by basically that we still have a positive sloping yield curve. In that environment, you can make money in stocks. Jason, we've been joking all day about the CFA because those poor level one and level two results came out today. And in the CFA, we learned all about the Fed model, which is the earnings yield relative to the long-term treasury yield. And here in your note, you talk about that, where you uh, talk about the dividend yield versus the treasury yield. As you take a look at both of those, how do valuations look right now? We keep talking about uh, we keep inching closer to that record high we had in January and not quite there yet. How do you feel about valuation? Well, valuation typically isn't the only way that a stock market peaks. And when you think about it, when we talk about the P.E. ratio for the next 12 months, the S&P is around 17, which is not that much higher than its average last 50 years of 16. But interest rates are much lower. So when you look at that spread and the P.E. ratio, you can't get too concerned about valuation at this level. So I, I got to ask you about a couple of the names that you are holding. Alibaba is one. Uh, PayPal is another. Visa, another. MasterCard seems to be a little bit of a theme here emerging. Why do you like those names right now? Jason, it's because the stocks represent how people are buying things. Mm -hmm. In the past, if you would have told someone like me that the U.S. GDP was going to be at 5%, unemployment below 4%, the knee-jerk reaction would have been, what consumer discretionary stocks do I want to own? Right now, though, we have a world where we've got almost overpopulated retail. And what really you can count on is how they're going to buy it not where they're going to buy or what type of product they're going to buy. And people are using plastic, they're using mobile, and that is growing worldwide. And the United States is not the leader on that. Right. right. China is 23% of their transactions by last count were on mobile devices. We're only at 9% in the United States. But look everywhere. You see how it's growing. Healthcare is another theme for you, and clearly that is also, in, in some ways, behavioral demographic. Uh, intuitive Surgical, I believe, is another name that, that you've looked pretty favorably upon. Why is that? Well, when you're a, a middle-aged or older man and you're facing the possibility of prostate 
cancer or a lot of people you know are, right. one of the first things that comes up in the conversation is, I hope I'm eligible for the robotic surgery. Ah. And intuitive surgery, is uh, the Da Vinci is their product. Got it. It's the largest in the installed base. It's uh, the one that's used to, to teach people at medical schools. And then this last qu- quarter, over 51% of their revenues came from disposables and services. So you're almost developed a f- classic Gillette model, installed base, and then recurring revenue from those. Talk to me about another one of your holdings, Constellation Brands, and sort of what you see there. I think year-to-date we're off about 3.2%. They're the world's largest premium wine producer. Uh, You know, when we just take a look at the fundamentals and the balance sheet here, what do you see in there? I see top-line revenue growth slowing a little bit, earnings growth slowing a little bit. What do you see that maybe the market isn't seeing? Well, Taylor, it's like a microcosm of the whole GDP. The GDP only grows at a certain rate. Uh, The beer industry in the United States does not really grow. It's 1% at the most, maybe 2%, often no growth. But within that big universe, there's uh, two stories. The largest Beer manufacturers, sellers in the United States are losing market share and have lost market share for almost 20 years running every single year. But the craft beer and the premium beer have been gaining market share and gaining pricing. And this is the premier national company right now for that. Tom Plum, President Chief Investment Officer of Plum Funds. He's based in Madison, Wisconsin, but we've been delighted to have him here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio here in New York. Stay dry. Get home safe. Hope those flight delays uh, don't nail you too badly. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.